0: morning church it's uh good to see so many men here today this morning during hunting season uh it's a miracle um no praise god i'm thankful to be here with you all let's seek the lord in prayer we need his help afresh this morning and there's a glorious text that's meant to prepare us for christmas so let's let's pray lord i thank you for this word that i have the privilege of preaching to your people this morning i thank you for all those that you've gathered This morning, I thank you, Lord, that beyond just us gathering to call upon the name of the Lord, that there are brothers and sisters across the globe right now uh, calling upon the name of the Lord this Lord's Day. We thank you that we are part of a people so much bigger than just FBC, but we thank you, Lord, that even though we're part of something so big, you still take thought of us. And so, Lord, we cry out to you this morning for your your help. Help me, Lord, as I preach this word, help me to preach with something of the sense of how glorious it is to echo your call in this text this morning. And I pray that you would help your people to receive this text for as glorious as it is. Lord, help our hearts to get around the truths in your word. No matter where we're at, as Jake prayed and spoke earlier, not just whatever anxieties, whatever fears, whatever things that we're bringing this morning, Lord, may we bring them to you and not stop sharp of coming to you with all of our cares, all of our burdens, and all of our praises. Bless your people now, Lord, as we submit ourselves unto your mighty hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week's passage, and the sermon was entitled, uh, A King Cut Off. Uh, we saw last week that Israel, because of their constant and perpetual idolatry, they were brought into bondage. They were brought into, um, exile. And one of the ways of summarizing that is to look at the descriptions of the king, because as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people, right? And so the king was like a twig thrown on the waters, swept up and swept away, right? The king was going away and so were the people with them. And so you could summarize that, that section of scripture, chapter 10, by saying the last verse in verse um, verse 15, at dawn, the king shall be utterly cut off. And I mentioned last week, and I marvel with you afresh this week, that I love God's providence and how he's inspired the scriptures to the detail of how things run one thing to another. And so you can go from verse 15 of chapter 10 to verse 1 of chapter 11 that says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, I trust you're going to understand more of the significance of that verse by the time we're done here this morning. But I'll tip my hand and say, we went from a king cut off to a king raised up in a matter of verses here. And so that's the title of this sermon this morning. A king raised up. Kind of part two from last week. We're going to see in this passage three calls. Three calls, first call, second call, last call, or you could put it this way, two calls in a roar. The last call is a lot more like a roar. So let's follow, follow with me here, diving in right away, the beginning of chapter 11. Look with me at this first call where God calls Israel, you could say his firstborn son, up out of Egypt. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt... I called my son. Now, for some of us, a lot of just review here, but for others, this might be new, so let's take the time to think about it. How did Israel end up in Egypt? You remember the story, the backstory of that? God's call to Abraham, then the promise passed on to Isaac, then to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and uh, one of them, in God's providence, was sent beforehand to, to Egypt. Joseph, he became the right-hand man in Egypt. Um, with sovereign power in Egypt. Well, the rest of the family was experiencing famine, right? And the rest of the lands. And they ended up going to Egypt where Joseph could provide for them, supplied all their needs. Israel started with this small band of people, grew, and it multiplied greatly. Now, when a new king, you could say, Pharaoh, took over, he started to oppress the people of God. He was merciless. They were enslaved in Egypt, experiencing much, much, much affliction. And it was at that point that they called out to the Lord. Now, that's some of the background to how they got there and something of how they were treated. But I want to read for us from um, Exodus chapter three, so we can hear. The actual words from the book of Exodus, I'm starting in chapter 3, verse 7, says this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down, I love that, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, speaking to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people listen to this title the children of israel out of egypt okay up out of egypt i call my son just while we're there in exodus chapter 4 looking at verses 22 to 23 listen to how god refers to israel it says then you shall say to pharaoh speaking to moses then you shall say to pharaoh thus says the lord israel is my firstborn son And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, up out of Egypt, I call my son, the text says in Hosea chapter 1. This is speaking about, first and foremost, there's multiple layers of meaning here. But this first layer we need to see is it's speaking about Israel being called up out of Egypt. It's speaking about the exodus of the people of God, them exiting Egypt. And the language that's used here in our passage poetically in Hosea 11 is truly beautiful. God portrays himself as a father caring for his son as he's bringing Israel up out of Egypt, as he's bringing his firstborn son up out of Egypt. Egypt. Listen to the language. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Skip to verse three. Yet I was yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Now you got this father teaching his son, instructing his son, teaching him how to walk. I took them up in my arms. This idea was he he led them out of Egypt, and then they got to the wilderness, and then he scooped them up. Like a son, and carried him. Listen to this. Uh, listen to Deuteronomy describe this. Deuteronomy chapter one, verse thirty-one. No need to turn there, but listen to this. It says, "And in the wilderness, where you have been now, um, sorry, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way." that you went until you came to this place, that is to the promised land. And so he leads them out of Egypt, then he scoops them up, brings them through the treacherous and dangerous wilderness, carries him all the way to the promised land. And while they're still in the wilderness and he's carrying them, he's saying, it says this, verse four, I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I didn't treat them like slaves. I I treated them as sons. And so these These bands, these cords, they were cords and bands of love and kindness from the Lord, not the cruel irons of the taskmaster they were experiencing in Egypt. He led them out as sons. He says, I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. Speaking about the taskmaster they were under. And so by bringing them out of there, he's taking them out of that, that cruel iron or this yoke that was so hindering them, easing their load. And then says, I bent down to them and fed them. I love this language. You can go look up later, uh, Psalm 78 verses 24 through 29. But this, the scripture is saying, I fed them. This idea of how he cared for them in the wilderness, giving them manna every single day without fail. And then the bread, they're getting a little tired of bread. So they complain. And God, instead of just striking them down in the moment, actually sent quail. And he blew the winds. He blew these birds in made them land in the camp to feed this vast multitude of people. This is God stooping down. This is God feeding, spoon feeding his son, his firstborn son, Israel. So how was God with Israel? He was like a father, a strong and tender father with his child. That's the picture that we have here. God providing for, protecting, nourishing, guarding, guiding his son, lavishing his love upon him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is such tender, beautiful language here. Now, how does the son respond to the father's love? We know this story already, right? We know where this is going. We've read so far in the book of Hosea. We can't get away from it. Can't get away with it in the whole Old Testament. Old Testament. They rebel against the Lord. They rebel against their father. Like I've said in a sermon past, Israel's is described as a treacherous bow. Do you remember that? I use the analogy of like a father with a son. The, son. the father training up his child, providing for him, guiding him. The father's like a general in the army and his son's growing up, meant to be in the army with him. And he's becoming a fantastic bowman, gets everything he needs from his father. His first outing in the battle Instead of shooting at the enemy, he turns and hits his father right between the shoulder blades. Like, he's a, a treacherous boy, He's a traitor. He's deceptive. He turns. In other words, God does so much good as a father for a son. But the son does so much evil in the response to that love from his father. So look how it's described afresh here in this passage. Verse 2, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. They took specific forms of statues and altars. But we've talked about ad nauseum, but we're going to make sure this is ground into the mind by the time we leave Hosea. Idolatry, anything we love equal to or above God, right? So the more they were called, the more they went back to their idols. Continuing in end of verse 3, right? Even though the Father took them up in their arms, in his arms, but they did not know that I healed them. That language, healed, is used because of Exodus, where God's, all these diseases and plagues fell upon the Israelites, but God spared Israel. He was their healer. But did they recognize him as such? Did they turn and thank him for the kind of father he has been to them? No. It says, they did not know. How could they not know? They forget. We forget. And so what are the consequences for Israel at this time? The text basically says, well, they're going back to bondage now. Look at verse 4. Or sorry, verse 5. And they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they refuse to return to me. So they might not go to Egypt, um, but they're going to go to an Egypt-like place, right? Egypt is... Like a picture of bondage at this point in Israel's history. It's a picture of where they were under a cruel taskmaster. They're not meant to go back there anymore. And they might not go to Egypt because of their rebellion, but they're going to go to Syria, which is like another Egypt. It's in parallel there. But Assyria shall be their king because they refused to to return to me because of the stubbornness of their hearts. They're going to return to an Egypt-like place. They're going to be in bondage. They're going to be under God's judgment. Same language we've seen before, but look at verse 6 briefly. The sword shall rage against their cities. You know, all the people from the countryside, when war breaks out, they would all flee to the city where they could batten down the hatches, be surrounded by this wall, have strong gates protecting them. And he's saying, it's not going to work. You can You can flee, but look. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. So this is, this is what Israel can expect. This is how Israel has responded to God's call, right? Up out of Egypt, I call my son. God continues to call them, but they continue to turn away and are like a treacherous ball, rebelling against God and all of his kindness. Now, as I pondered Israel's response afresh in this passage I felt led to have us think about and actually practice specifically remembering how God has treated us and to see to it that we're not responding stubbornly to God. I mean, think about our conversion and the the circumstances surrounding our conversion when we went from death to life, who we were and what God has done in delivering us that we take time to think about the circumstances surrounding that deliverance that God has worked through Christ in our lives. And not just our conversion, though, but also how he's scooped us up in his arms and has been guiding us through and caring for us and providing for us through this treacherous wilderness. I want to encourage you to think specifically about how God has cared for you. This has been really good for my soul to do that. You know, it's amazing how the heart can start to become hard, but then you start to think the right kind of thoughts, the kinds that the Bible has you think about the nature of God and who he is and what he's done, and all of a sudden it starts to soften the heart, doesn't it? And I had myself, I saw myself just thinking about, um, well, not just the circumstances surrounding my conversion, but I was thinking about the early days. Like I was a brand new Christian, okay? Not surrounded with the benefits of a Christian home. And I just saw, I look back and I just see how God just protected me my senior year of high school. He just, He just protected me in so many ways that I just feel like were supernatural. Then I went to college and I'm in this place where I don't know, I don't know the Bible at all, you know? And they're around all these Christian kids and there's almost this insecurity like, man, I don't know. Like all these kids have been brought up. They know way more about the Bible than I do. I'm sitting in Bible class just like, lost like I don't even belong here and God like it's okay I will scoop you up like I I will walk you through this I will meet you where you're at. and he raised up spiritual fathers for me at the time when I needed them the most because I didn't have a spiritual father in my life at least in terms of from a biological standpoint like I had I had no spiritual fathers and God raised them up for me I could go literally on all day talking about this because it's so good for my mind and my heart and it's so good to remember isn't it And so I want to encourage you, take some time this week to think about how he has delivered you and let God go to work because there's great danger in forgetting the kindness that God has shown. It's the fastest way to act stubbornly toward God. And it's so unfitting for the children of God that have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ to continue in stubbornness when God has been so unspeakably kind to us, not just in saving us, but in sustaining us in the wilderness. He has been like a father to us. So let's respond to his fatherliness by faith. Amen? That's the first call. God calling Israel, his firstborn son, up out of Egypt. Now a second call. Warning, it's a negative one. Verse seven. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call... Out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. All right? They call out to the Most High. On the face of it, one might be tempted to go, God is the cruel taskmaster. I mean, they're calling out to him, and he's saying he won't raise them up. Is this hardness on God's part? Or is there something about the nature of that call here that's not right? 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 We're told back in chapter six, kind of one of the sweetest passages in Hosea, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. He will raise us up, if what? If we return to him, right? And that is return to him in repentance. So what we can see here is they are calling out to God, but are they calling out to him from the heart? Is this true repentance? No. So if it's not true repentance, of course he's not going to raise them up. He's not going to restore them if there is not a true repentance here. And so they do not repent from the heart. And so they need a heart change here. And I remember one of the other prophets saying, you know, rend your hearts, not your garments. They would give this flashy outward display of repentance, but nothing changed in their heart. They can flood the bed with tears. We saw that earlier in Hosea. But they do not cry from the heart. That's what's happening right here. And we have evidence around it that we're on the right track, because it says, My people are bent on turning away from me. You can't be completely bent on turning away from God and not return to him in true repentance and then expect this call to be met, to be raised, to be raised up. So they are not turning, returning to the Lord in true repentance. Therefore, they're gonna stay right where they're at. They're gonna stay in bondage. That's where it is heading. They will not be raised up without repentant hearts. Now, before we leave this briefer point on the second call, I just want to, I want to just give a review of instruction about the nature of repentance. Because this is so important for us to get, because I think sometimes we can just really slip into the same deception that, that Israel was in. You know, they can cry out. Well, what would lead them to cry out like they are in verse 7? Consequences stink. (laughs) It's not pleasant, you know. The consequences of our sin, you know, generally lead to more misery in our lives. So they don't like the consequences. They don't like being caught, right? And all that, that that goes with it. But what are they not grieved about? They're not grieved about their sin. They're not grieved about God. So this, the crying, you know, the rending of the garment. this could just be a little pity party that's happening here. But it's not true repentance of heart. This is really, really important for us to get. So what is true repentance? Again, true repentance, like it says in chapter 5, the last verse in chapter 5 leading up to those verses in chapter 6, come let us return to the Lord, is that they must, um it says this, it says, uh, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. That's a basic way of thinking about it. So it's a change of mind. Yes. It's an acknowledgement of guilt. It's a turning from sin and turning to God by faith. It is a genuine sorrow for sin that we've committed and against the God that we've committed it against. And so it's a genuine sorry, being sorrow, sorry for sin. It's a hatred. For sin. It's a turning from sin. It's a desire to want to please God. That's true repentance in a nutshell. And so that's why Paul can say there's such thing as godly grief and worldly grief. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And there's an eternity, eternal difference between those two. There's gonna be many, many people just by nat by nature, that don't like the consequences that they're experiencing. They don't like being kind, but that's there's a difference between not liking your consequences, feeling bad of the misery that it's brought in your life and being cut to the heart for how you and I have offended the living God. And then not staying there, but turning to Christ with our sin for forgiveness and new life that we would live before him. And so let's remember the nature of true repentance and the promises that come with it. God will raise us up. God will revive us. But let's not be deceived in calling, saying, Oh, I called on him. Did you? From the heart. From the heart. And this point presses home for me again and again what I've seen throughout Hosea, throughout the Old Testament, and it's just begged for throughout the Old Testament, answered so clearly in the New. But there is a fundamental need for a heart transformation. It's the biggest need, right? There, My people are bent on turning away from me. This is the fundamental problem with humanity. It's not just that people do bad things. It's that their hearts are bent away from God and towards sin. This is who we are by nature. And we need God to do a supernatural overhaul, a supernatural heart transplant, right? Ezekiel 36, taking out of the heart of stone, putting in of our heart of flesh, putting his spirit inside us, causing us to walk in his statutes. God must work the new birth. There are many that live and die and not realize they must be born again if they're going to enter the kingdom. To not just get caught up in a religious system and think that they're, they're just fulfilling certain requirements. Like, you must be born of God. This is what we need. And so I want to just put this on our minds and hearts again and press on the desperate need for the new birth. What does our town need more than anything else? They need the new birth. They need the new birth. They need to be born again to a living hope. This is what people need. We don't need cosmetics. We don't need to just to fix people's behavior. We need a fundamental heart change. And maybe some of you here this morning need this. You need this. You've never actually been cut to heart. And even as you're hearing this description of repentance, you're going, I'm not sure I've ever truly repented and been grieved over my sin And turn to God. And I'm very concerned about a shallow understanding of repentance. We have to truly repent and grieve our sin. and Or we will not turn to God. How will we know that we need a physician unless we know we're sick? We are desperately sick. Our hearts are bent on turning away from God by nature. And so... Praise the Lord for this intervention that he has done. The reason why we call upon the name of the Lord today is because of such grace poured out in the new birth so that our hearts are no longer bent on turning um, away from him. Now they're bent toward him. That's a miracle. It's a miracle in the soul. So that even when we stray, we long to be back there. And we want to go back. We want to repent. Now, the first call Israel calls Egypt, his firstborn son, calls Israel, his firstborn son, up out of Egypt. Second call, Israel's insincere call to God, false repentance. Third, last call, that's a lot more like a roar. The roar of God's faithful son. So I want to jump to verse 10. It says, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This last call is a powerful roar. And I want you to notice what this roar does. Like God roars in this way. And his wayward people return to him. In fact, the roar actually accounts for the return. It says, I will return them in verse eleven. God is gonna grant the type of repentance that's gonna bring them hope home again. But this roar actually affects a change in a people and actually brings about their return home. God is going to roar. And I love it. It says that. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And I just kind of thought to myself, well, they're going to get behind the lion. Probably a good idea. Probably a good idea to get behind the lion than to stay in front of the lion. right? So he's going to roar and they're going to go after the Lord. They're going to follow him all the way home. So it brings a wayward people home. It brings about the return that is so desperately needed. They will get behind the lion. It's a very good idea. And it's kind of sweet to see that this language of God roaring is used in different places in the Old Testament. And I want to use one, give one example of it in Joel chapter three, verse 16. It says, the Lord, that's Joel three, verse 16. You don't have to turn there, but hear this. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So this roar is a roar that's going to cause people to take refuge in Him. God promised that He would roar and and bring about this return. But when we're looking at this contrast between how God has been like a father to Israel and Israel has been like a treacherous, deceitful, backstabbing son to God. And then we hear this roar where the children are going to come home and you just go, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Look at the language of verse eight. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? How can I hand you over to these things? How can I ultimately hand you over to judgment? Then it's got these two cities, Adama and Zeboim. These were cities around Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed and demolished when God's wrath was poured out. How can I make you like them? I don't want to make you like them. So why would God roar and bring them back? The answer clearly stated at the end of verse 8, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is such beautiful language. Why would God roar like this? Because he has compassion for sinners while they're still sinners. He has compassion for sinners while they were still sinners. It makes me think of Romans 5.8. And while you were sinners, still sinners, Christ loved you and died for us. He loved us and died for us while we were still sinners. This compassion of God is meant to awaken many things in us. And when we consider how God loves us while we were sinners it should make our minds just get blown to think how much more does he love us now that we are in Jesus Christ. There is a particular love that God has for his blood-bought adopted children. A particular love. It's not the exact same love he has for the whole world. But here we're meant to see like this love is deep even when we're in a state of rebellion. It's real. God loves people. He loved us while we were still in our sin. He loves sinners right now. While they're still in their sin. This is the kind of God we're dealing with. I think about, um, discipline. You know, when we, when we think about God disciplining us as His children, it's really easy to be like, no, this is not God loving me. This is God hating me. It can feel that way because no discipline, you know, feels good. It's not pleasant in the moment, right? Later it bears a peaceful fruit of righteousness, but right now it just feels like hate. Almost and i think about an experience i've had as a dad a young dad when my daughter Hosanna was really little and there would be time for discipline and i i just remember this it just did something to me in my mind and heart and it taught me something about god fatherhood does that you know it gives you windows into your own sinful nature <laughs> and uh it gives you a lot of windows into god's nature and and uh, one of the things that ministered to me so much is after a time of discipline, so I'd give a spanking, and um, Hosanna would always do this thing. She would always she would get up on her knees and she would turn. She'd grab me by the cheeks and she would look right into my eyes. <laughs> and and it all it did something to me because she looked in my eyes as if to say, like, what's in your heart. You know, because we know we're not meant to discipline out of anger, right? And it's such a powerful thing when we discipline out of love. Right? Like, I don't want to do this to you. But I don't want you to end up there. Right? And so, we know from the Bible that if we love our children, we'll discipline them. And, but that picture of her looking into my eyes to see into my heart just has just moved me. And so it makes me think, anytime I'm disciplining my children, I, I want there to be in my heart something that they're seeing, you know, in my discipline in in that moment. And when it comes to God disciplining us as his children, we need to know what kind of heart stands behind his discipline. Because if we don't, we're going to be tempted to despise the discipline of the Lord, to act stubbornly and to rebel against him, right? But instead, we need to look up and we need to get up on his knees, We need to look up into his eyes, hold the cheeks as it were, peer into his heart, and you know what you see? You see at the end of verse 8, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What should this do to us when we are wayward? It should make us want to go to God. It should make us want to go to him because this is the God who meets us. Even if it feels painful, he's working it for our good, but this is, all the discipline that he does to his children is out of this kind of heart. Now, I thought more about this and I thought to myself how much application and implication there is for us as we are sharing our faith with others, as we are evangelizing with others. Because people are in their sin, right? And we're hurt, we hear from this text that towards sinners, God's heart recoils within him. It, it, it's, he says, my compassion grows warm and tender. So we need to think, how does it, how, like in one sense, you could put it this way. You're the evangelist, right? It's not just Daniel This an evangelist, though he's a good one. Like, people need to be able to look at Daniel when he's sharing the gospel. Stand tall, Daniel, you're right. Uh, look at Daniel, and they need to, as it were, to be able to look into his eyes and see something about the compassion of God for sinners in his expression of the gospel as he's sharing it. Same goes for all of us. We want people, we want sinners to be able to look into our eyes and see the warmth and feel the warmth of God for sinners. It surely will call people to recognize their sin and guilt and and call people to turn to Christ. But there is a warmth of love that it's just meant to encompass that, that transaction that is happening there. And so what do people see when they look into our eyes? What do our children see when they look into our eyes? May God help it be more and more. His compassions that fail not. So, we ask the question, like, why would God do this? Well, it's because He's compassionate in heart. Why would He roar and cause the people to return in this call home? Well, we also could ask, how? How is He gonna do it? How is that actually gonna happen? Like, what is it about this roar that's changing anything? What did God do that could speak so loudly? that all the earth could hear it and the peoples would come and return home, that the children would return home. And this is where we get to that another layer of meaning in verse one of Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The New Testament writers quote this, Matthew specifically, Matthew chapter two, verse 15. The context is God speaking to 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 Joseph in a dream saying, "Take baby Jesus and his mother Mary, bring them to Egypt, right? Bring them to Egypt. Pharaoh or actually, Pharaoh? Because I'm ex- the two. So I'm uh, Herod to save him from Herod, which is like Pharaoh in that moment, and bring him to Egypt. And this is what Matthew says in that context, applying it directly to Jesus. He says this." And he remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. A king cut off, a king raised up. God is raising up a king here and we're meant to see it. That's how Matthew saw it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is how we're meant to see it. The ultimate meaning of the Exodus was going to be the time when God would call up out of Egypt his faithful son. The first call was calling out an unfaithful son, Israel, right? We saw that by the response. But God's going to raise up another son, and he's going to be a faithful son. And that's emphasized so strongly. In one sense, we're meant to look at the Exodus narrative in the Bible, and we're meant to look at Jesus. The Exodus and Jesus. You know, Israel and ultimately go, Jesus. Jesus is embodying Israel in that moment. He is the true embodiment of the true and faithful son. This son's faithfulness is going to mean our salvation. It's what's going to make that roar so loud. And I love this because zooming out in the book of Hosea, the primary message of Hosea is God's redeeming love pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And that love is ultimately going to be experienced when he calls his son up, his faithful son. And his faithful son is really the one that's going to, at the end of the day, let out the roar. God's going to roar through his son. But just to pause here and say, this text is meant to prepare our hearts this Advent season. Like, this is what God has done. This is what Christmas time's all about, is that God has called his faithful son to bring us home. He's called up his faithful son in order to bring us home. But he did this in a very specific way. This God came in our midst. I love this verse eight, or sorry, verse nine. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a man. That is God. I'm a God. I always keep my word. I always keep my word. And it says, the Holy One in your midst. I love that. In the same context, we're talking about God taking on human flesh. You know, Jesus, the birth of Jesus. We're talking about the Holy One being in our midst, and it's Him coming and ultimately Him dying that's going to account for the fact that God's wrath would be turned away. His burning anger would not be executed upon the people. And so what I want to do to help us hear this roar and how loud it is, To help us see that this roar, this call is ultimately coming from the cross of Jesus Christ. When he is lifted up on the cross, that call is what's going to call all people. Okay? That's the call. And so let's listen to Jesus' words. Take a little journey through the Gospel of John down the home stretch here. And so listen to this description of Jesus being the obedient son that's going to be lifted up. That's just another way of describing his death. I'm going to start in John 8, verses 28 and 29. John 8, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that is on the cross in his death, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing out of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. See that taught language? The Father brought son out of Egypt. He taught him. He says the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This is the difference between Israel, the firstborn son, and Jesus, God's beloved son, is that he's going to be the obedient son that is raised up. So as he's lifted up on the cross, we need to hear this is the obedient son that is lifted up for our Sake. And he's going to be lifted up in love, which is an echo of this heart that recoils within God, this compassion that grows warm and tender for sinners. And so now I jump back to John 3, verses 14 through 16. Get some of the context leading up to verse 16, which we know so well. John 4, 3, 14 to 16 says, and, so, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... The story in Exodus where there's a bronze serpent put up on a pole and, and whoever looked upon that serpent would be healed of the snake bites that just happened and just picture. Everybody's been infected by sin, bit by sin, as it were. And now whoever looks upon the son is going to be saved. So that's what's being described here. It says, as and as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now listen to this call. Listen to what Jesus is doing when he's lifted up in John 12, verse 32. This is the obedient son being lifted up in love for a sinful people to call all men, to call sinners to himself. John 12, verse 32, it says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's the roar. That's the roar. Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross, calling all people to himself. That's what he's doing on the cross, calling a people. So how do the nations hear? How are they going to hear that roar? We need to speak about one who is lifted up for their sake. Point to the one who can heal them, who can save them. And note also what the Father is doing right now. As his son was lifted up on the cross, his father is drawing people to his son. This is John 6, verse 44. No one, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And listen to this echo of Hosea. And I will raise him up on the last day. Who will be raised up? Those who hear the roar and respond to it in repentance and faith. Now, That's the clearest application in some ways of this text. God has roared by lifting his son up. He has roared from Zion and he is calling all people to himself. And what's so powerful about preaching and sharing the gospel is that God calls people through the sharing of the gospel. And so you need to hear his roar today. You need to hear this word. God has lifted up his son so that you would not perish, but have eternal life through faith in his Son, get behind the Lion of Judah. This is why I think it's justified to do this. Lion language, Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah. Ultimately, this is his roar, and it's a lot safer to get behind the lion to stay than to stay in front of the lion. You do not want to face him that way, so get behind him and follow his roar. He will bring you safely into the promised land. Now, I want to... Uh, close by just making just a couple brief applications. Israel, the firstborn son, was called up out of Egypt. And then did you notice in verse two, and it says, the more they were called, the more they went away. I think there's a helpful parallel for us in the Christian life. We were initially called. When we came and put our faith in Christ, we were effectually called. That call went out and it took root in the heart. It fundamentally changes through the preaching of the gospel, through hearing the gospel. God changes a heart. We're called. We respond to it. Return to the Lord. But then God continues to call us. He continues to speak to us. He continues to say something like, take up your cross daily and follow me. And we saw how Israel responded, right? And that's written down for our instruction that we would not respond stubbornly to God's continually calling of us but that we would listen to his voice and that we wouldn't harden our hearts. Instead, we would seek to respond to his love by faith. So as we picture that beautiful, tender picture of a father walking his children along, a father scooping his child up, let us, let us grow warm in our hearts toward this God who carries cares for us in this way. Let us be more sensitive to this call at every turn and every bit of, of our journey, every leg of our journey, and I just couldn't help but think, um, I know on I know this election is on a lot of your minds, and I just couldn't help but just smile at God's providence. I've been trying to say periodically, like however the election goes, however the election goes, we should not be a people that are undone by this if we're trusting in the God who raises up kings and takes down kings, right? Our sovereign God, well. I want to just make a closing application in this text and go, can we praise God together that out of Egypt he has called his faithful son? And this son is a king. God has raised up a son. He's raised up the one that we need to put all of our trust in. And so if there's extra disappointments in this time, I want to say, I want to say, go to this king. Fix your eyes on this king. We are, are doing just fine. We will be. Kings have come. They've gone throughout church history. People have to respond to all kinds of adverse circumstances. So whether you're disappointed or you're thrilled, it doesn't really matter at this point. I want you to know that God, out of Egypt, God has raised up his son. And he's a king. And we are in his care. And we are going to be treated like God treated Israel here. Only we could say infinitely better because of how he has bound us in heart and soul to his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't done a uh, time of congregational prayer in our corporate gathering in a while, so I want to do that now, uh, in case you've forgotten since it's been a little while. Um, I just ask that you pray out and pray, try to pray your best loud enough where others can hear agree with you in prayer, be edified. There's a lot of things that we can cry out to God about. Thank God for, petition God for, in light of what we've just heard from his word. So I'm going to let you lead out and I'll close this. So please, several lead out.